you need it because our very first question inside here is the beginning of our message today is what gives you hope? What gives you hope? That's the very first question, recalibrate question. We're going to go through these three as we delve further deeper into Daniel and into the whole series on resiliency. I took uh, a Sunday, I worked all day Sunday, so I took Monday off, uh, and it was Columbus Day. I don't know if, what that really means. I, I should probably research this. Uh, I've heard people debate that they should cancel Columbus Day. Other people said they should extend it. There's a whole huge slew of interesting topics when it comes to that. So I kind of avoided the subject and said, it's a holiday, I'm going to embrace it, and I took it. And we went riding on our bicycles. Um, what I didn't realize that, well, my, and I can say this because my wife's not here today. <laughs> Uh, she's down in Denver. She's speaking for the North American divisions there their communication conference this morning She's speaking down there, so she's not here so I can say this. so she planned this ride. She said, oh, it's really easy You know, it's, it's flat uh, You know, there is no such thing as a flat ride. This is a this is a, a bold-faced lie But but <laughs> we're gonna go through this ride and it won't be that far, you know there and back a few miles 29 miles later and I am dead, <laughs> 29 miles later, returning to the car, saying, Jesus, that this car is real, and, and it has a heated seat. I know that's really hot, but it'll need that heated seat. It's just 29 miles of hard labor going to Denver and back. I got to Denver, I was so tired that even when we ate lunch, I was like, I'm just gonna have a salad. I can't, I can't, even, I can't even eat, it's just gonna be too heavy for me to eat, because I have to carry that food back with me. <laughs> I'm like, this is gonna be too much. But here's the great thing about it, right? My son Jonah, um, he, he actually stayed with me most of the time. Becky and, and Josh were cycling at like three miles an hour, and, and I was behind them just kind of keeping up with them. Um, but Jonah stayed behind me, with me all the time, and Jonah's like the zip. I mean, he's just easy. Any hill, he's like, let me show you how to take it. And he just flies up the hill. And I love going down the hill. Uh, it's great, I really enjoyed that element inside it. But he had such a great spirit about him. He was just so kind, so gentle, constantly encouraging me, saying, this is possible, you can do this, Dad, stay with us. I'm constantly saying, man, if I could find a road and I could call Uber, <laughs> I would find a car that takes a bicycle, I would go back straight away, and this would be perfect. But my son, Jonah, just kept me through the whole 29 miles, side by side, the whole thing. And I thanked him dearly for that, because it was demoralizing and depressing. And hope is so important when you know that you have no idea when this road is going to end. And I really didn't. At one point, I think I did stop Jonah, and I, and I called Josh and Becky, who were like, I think, at the park, lying down on the grass, sunbathing. And I said, where are you? <laughs> I don't know. And my, and my son Josh is like, it's, it's a straight road. Um, just continue. <laughs> and everything. I, I feel lost. And how much longer? <laughs> That's my fear. But hope really does make a, a huge difference to us, especially if you're with someone who believes that it can be done. There's a great text in the Bible in 1 Corinthians 13, 13 that we all know really well, right? Faith, hope, and love. And we talk about faith a lot. We talk about love a lot but we don't really talk about hope a lot. And hope appears in the Bible 180 times. So you'd think that it'd be worthy of somebody to kind of like interject in this and talk about this. In fact, when you read the context of faith, hope, and love in 1 Corinthians, you understand Paul is saying, you start with faith, it takes you to hope, and that's what generates love. In fact, one day, faith will no longer be needed because you will see Jesus. Hope will be realized because it is fulfilled in Jesus but love will always continue. I love this, N.T. Wright says this, 
he says that love is the grammar, the grammar of the language that we will use forever. Isn't that good? Love is the grammar of the language that we'll use forever. And he says this, he tries to pull us along saying, you always need faith, but you always need hope, which then generates you to love. Mozart was a, a bit of a comedian. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, he loved to play uh, practical jokes on his father, Leopold. And this is what he loved to do. He would go to a piano. His father would be, uh, his father would be asleep. He goes to the piano. You're kind of shocked now. You're thinking he's going to play, right? Well, yes, kind of. Uh, and as his father fell asleep and was just entering into that really comfortable state, what Mozart would do is he would go to the piano and he'd do this. And just kind of stop right there. And then he'd go back and he'd go. And he would do this over and over again, just. And just constantly just leaving it there, hanging all the time. Eventually, Leopold apparently would get up and just out of frustration, come downstairs and just go, completion. <laughs> I feel the same about faith, hope, and love. I feel that faith and hope are the scale. And that complete note is love. And sometimes we talk about faith and we talk about hope, but we don't realize that it has to lead us to love. It has to have that note inside there. We're like, ah, oh, complete. I got it all together. And we do need this. We need this every single day. We need more hope all the time, especially when you think about what's going on in the world today around us and in our economy and our life. And you look at the elections in November and you think to yourself, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen inside there. You may have been keeping up to speed with our church's own head office meetings that took place the last week where they pulled hundreds of leaders from around the world to discuss unity and action and that kind of stuff, and they took a vote, and it was an interesting vote. I think it was like 169 to 121 or something like that, so in favor of this new unity document that people don't even really understand what is that really going to mean for us locally here? What does it mean for women in ministry? All these things are unknown and we have to hold on to something else. There is a culture among some people as well of assertionism. If I assert this to you, therefore it is true. And I have just asserted it. But here at Boulder Church, we don't assert things. We discuss things, we negotiate things, we question things, and God encourages us to be able to do that. And the book of Daniel helps us to be able to grow through this process. It says, I'm going to give you some hope. I'm going to give you some hope, and this hope is going to take you to a place where you learn to love and to live more. The General Conference also, and this is the name that we give uh, for our head office. I think we, we, we took it from the Methodists. They do the same kind of thing, a general council, general conference. And they met as well, and they were discussing the methods of bringing people to faith. Uh, the term that they would use would be evangelism, would be the technical jargon they would do this. And they said that our current methods of what we do to bring people to a space where, where they can discover God and say, I want to follow Jesus Christ and I want to belong and I want to actually be engaged in this, has a result right now of 49% uh, success. So 51 people out of every 100 leave. They come in, they hear, and after a while, they leave. 51 out of every hundred people. And I was uh, challenged just a couple of weeks ago where somebody wrote to me and said that they wanted to know what I'm doing about the bleeding at Boulder Church. And, and I shared with them that uh, I haven't seen any bleeding at Boulder Church because this is what I believe about bleeding. Let me articulate what I mean by that. Um, they were concerned that people were transferring, moving from Boulder Church to another church. And I said, that's fantastic. 
right? Because they're following God. What they don't like here is one thing, and if they don't like that one thing, let them go choose a church where they feel happy every single weekend and enjoy worship and are involved and engaged. Now, if somebody came along and said, I don't want to follow God anymore, that's bleeding. That's bleeding. That worries me. That keeps me up late at night. But anybody else, I'm really happy for them. I'll give you an example. Last week, uh, I met somebody who came to visit the church for the first time, and um, they, somebody introduced me to them, they're sitting over there in the corner, and uh, they explained to me straight away, they were very offended that I wasn't wearing a tie. Um, and, and this was a, a big deal to them. And I said to them, well, I, I understand, and I, believe me, I have a lovely collection of ties. I love ties. But I explained this little secret to them. I believe that when you wear a tie, you actually have to have a shirt that closes, right? Right here. You see the space? That's not a good clothes. A good clothes goes all the way across. That's a nice, tight clothes on the neck of a shirt. But when you have a, a development, um, and, uh, and you know, the development you know, is growing, uh, and it's, you know, just, it's happy, and uh, when that happens, shirts are not designed that way. So you have to get custom-made shirts. And I was like, oh, that's kind of a bit difficult, a little bit expensive. So my shirts always have a very large neck, but they feel good here, right? You understand? So I said to the guy, that's why I don't wear a tie. It's not that I woke up one morning and thought to myself, no tie. <laughs> this is a theological statement, no tie. It's that actually just doesn't fit. And so if it did, I'd be really happy with it because I like ties. I mean, Eliad doesn't like ties that often. I think I've seen him one, wear a tie once. But notice how, twice, twice, but notice how he can close his shirt. I am so jealous. Okay, so I explain this, but these are personal preferences. Do you understand? So people make personal preferences about what they think is right and what they think is wrong, and they transfer, and that's okay because I'm happy with them. Now let me give you a little reality check here. New generation coming through the church, new generation in life, they are referred to when they do surveys about their religious affiliation, they are referred to as nuns. Uh, not as the Catholic nuns, but N-O-N-E-S, nuns plural of none, effectively. And the reason is because when they are asked to select, am I Methodist, Protestant, whatever it may be, Baptist, Seventh-day Adventist, they prefer to select none of the above. No religious affiliation whatsoever. And this is a growing trend that's taking place. And people may ask, well, why would they select none of the above? Have they not heard the good news? Yes, they've heard the good news. Have they not understood that salvation comes through God and they know the truth? Yes, they understand, but they have chosen, tragically, as a combination of just despair and anguish with current religious affiliation to click none of the above. I had a breakfast meeting this week uh, with a chap, and really nice guy, great conversation, really good guy, really enjoyed discussing things in life with him. And then eventually got to the point where we talked about God as well and, and his engagement with God. He said, no, I, I don't believe in God. I don't need God. And I was kind of like, all right, well, explain that to me. And he tried to articulate where he stands on this view of what he believes about God and not about God. And, and then he said, oh, you know, I had a friend of mine, a Catholic priest, who came to me and said to me this. He said, look, you have two options. You could choose to believe in God and hey, if it works out, it works out, or you could choose not to believe in God, and if you find out that you were wrong, well, there's some problems inside there, right? So he said, logically, logically, just reasoning, surely you should believe in God. But this person chose not to. 
And I think it's important for us to remember this, that, that faith doesn't come about just from one factor. I'm going to ask Alex to put the this, this screen up here because I think it's important for you to see these, these words here. Experience, faith, reasoning, and intuition. And I want you to write this down in your worship guide or write this down in, on your phone or some piece of paper because we're going to come back to these. When you have experience, when you have faith, when you have reasoning and intuition, and you combine all those together, you will reach a point where you can say, I truly now can decide what I believe about God. I truly now can embrace. And I believe that people who experience it, who have faith, who go through a reasoning process and, and follow their intuition, actually will follow God. They will engage themselves in this. They will embrace all this, all this all the way through. We don't have time to go through all of these, but I want you to keep that list because I will refer back to experience, faith, reasoning, and intuition. The nuns, none of the above, reject God through religion, not because they don't know religion, but because they really do, but because they really do. They have experienced so many different forms of religion that have created barriers to their experience with God. They have seen people fight about argue about preferences and this and that, and have seen no application of their life that made a difference to them, so they say, why should I do that? And tribal identity, you know, whether you call yourself a Seventh-day Adventist or something else, tribal identity ends up becoming a really big issue for some. That's why some don't want membership at all. They want to be a follower of God, but they're not interested in membership. There's a, a disengagement and apathy that takes place when we move back. Now, I love my tribe. I love Adventism, all right? Don't get me wrong about that. I do, I enjoy it. But every now and again, leaders get together and they make really silly decisions at the highest level of our church all the way down to us as well. I get together with you and we make silly decisions. And we just say to ourselves, well, that was a stupid decision. We need to go back and look at that again. And the reality is, is that if we can remember that we're human beings, everything's okay. Because we try, but sometimes we don't get it right. So we have to give the flexibility. That's why I say when a decision is made at whatever level of the church system, whether it's locally or globally, don't quit. They may be silly, but don't quit. Don't give up on that. Now Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, He's a devout Jew. He loves his tribe. And he looks at his tribe and he says, my tribe has made silly decisions. Lots of them. And if you studied with us through the Resiliency series and you looked through the whole book of Daniel, you will note that there were many times where he would refer to the kings and the priests and the prophets and the leaders who have destroyed Judah, destroyed Israel, destroyed the Jewish nation and left them, led them into captivity through their silly decisions. But this is what Daniel does at the very beginning of Daniel chapter 9. He's filled with embarrassment, which is the way I feel sometimes about the decisions our church makes. I am embarrassed. I am embarrassed about the decisions that we make. He's filled with embarrassment. He repents. He intercedes. He says, I am Jewish. He says, this is my problem. This is my tribe. And dear God, forgive me and them. So when you're upset about a decision the church has done, do you say it's your problem? Or do you say it's just them? If you're like Daniel, you will claim this with them. And you will say, this is our problem. This is our church. This is our tribe. And we will go to God about this. We will claim it all together. And Daniel does this. He places all of his hope into God. 
Which brings us to question number two, the big question in the middle here. What makes you question hope when all of Daniel's experience has been always to place his hope in God? What makes you do that? Well, Daniel, as you see, as we've seen in the last few weeks as well, he spends a lot of time where God is trying to help him to understand how hope builds up. In the first four chapters, Daniel 1 to 4, as I said before, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar is the main story inside there. You've got a guy who says, this is not my God, this is a good guy, I'm not too sure, and then eventually he assents to and says, this is my God and I will follow him. But there are sub-stories inside there, phenomenal stories inside chapters 1 to 4, included above and beyond Nebuchadnezzar as well, including that God is in control of everything. He sets things up and victory will come. One day there will be a rock, it will come, it will carve out, the whole statue will be dissolved, and the world will be recreated. And he's saying this in Daniel chapters 1 through to 4. Then we got to chapter 7 and 8, because we're going through this in chronological order, right? We're going through the story of Daniel as it goes through. And 7 and 8, tons of great detail. You look at Daniel chapter 2, the statue, then you explode it into intense detail in 7 and 8. You see that there is oppression. You see that there will be a period where, where it just seems like forever will last, where God will be suppressed, where he will not have the freedom to be able to communicate as he wants to with the people. But yet God says there's going to be victory. Daniel, of course, listening to these visions, seeing these visions for the first time in his life, he, he leaves perplexed by the end of Daniel chapter 8. Then we went to Daniel 5, 6, which is a few years later, and you start to see that Daniel is going through these ups and downs. He's rejected sometimes, he's accepted sometimes, he's promoted sometimes, he's demoted sometimes. He's constantly just experiencing the turmoil of life that everybody else experiences as well. And as he's going through all of this here, you understand that he goes through this deep crucible, just like his friends did in Daniel chapter 3. And through that deep crucible, he has this incredible strength that God gives him, and he comes out of it, and he is delivered. It's not long, though, from Daniel 5 and 6, until you get to where we are in Daniel chapter 9. From that period of that vision where he's worried about what's going to be, it's nine years pass by, nine years pass by. Nine years of Daniel wrestling with God, saying, God, what did that 2,300 mean? Really? Is it that long? I don't understand. Why did you give me this vision? And God doesn't give him the answer for nine years. There's a reason why this is coming, because God wants him to get into a space where he's ready to understand that something amazing is happening. And this is what happens. The prophecy that he understood that Daniel grew up, remember Jeremiah was his hero, this other prophet, and he watched this prophet, and the prophet said, you will go into captivity, you'll be there for 70 years. Daniel's now coming to the end of the captivity. He's like, we're going to go back to Jerusalem. This is fantastic. He's in his 80s. He's like, yes, at long last, the prophecy will come true, and all will be well. And God says, no. You will go back to Jerusalem. Some of you will go back to Jerusalem. But this prophecy is to usher in, is to be a marker for something far larger that Daniel, I want you to start to piece together inside here. And that's where we dive into Daniel chapter 9, verse 22 and 23. So if you have your Bibles, pull it out. Uh, in the pews, the Bible there is page 833. Page 833. And we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. I hope you've been enjoying the daily walk. There's a lot of stuff that we cover inside the daily walk that I don't cover inside the message here, and so it helps you to be able to connect with where we're going with this, but I'm going to pull it all together right now so that we'll see where we go with this. Daniel chapter 9, verses 22 and 23. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. 
At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you're greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. There's this little parallel that the, the angel is saying to him. Insight and understanding. Word, understanding, and vision. This is one of the first places where you get the beautiful combination of faith and intelligence coming together. And I wrote this in the daily walk for you, but it's with faith and reasoning. You remember those four words that we put up? Let's see those four words again. Experience, faith, reasoning, intuition. I'm talking about faith and reasoning. Those two things take place inside Daniel here. He says to him, I need you to have faith, but I need you to reason. I need you to use your intelligence now. A little bit of mathematics, a little bit of understanding, a little bit of reflection. You've had time to process all of this. And when you do this, you, Daniel, will grow in your faith. You will have more hope. Then he says in verse 24, we're going to go through these last four, these verses here, because these verses are the most complex and yet the most beautiful and point to us and raise hope in our lives. So Daniel 9, 24, 70 weeks are decreed. And if you'd studied the daily walk, you would understand that 70 times seven, based on the year-day principle, you got 490 years. Remember that figure, 490 years. They have been decreed. He says, to your people and to your holy city, to two things. Now, in Hebrew, unlike in the English translation, there's actually a rhythm to the way this entire verse is written. It's written so beautifully that, in fact, when it says your people, it uses two words. And when it says your holy city, it uses three words. Then every sentence, every group of three underneath is written in, in two words, two words, two words, or written in three, 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 so that there's a rhyme and a rhythm inside this particular verse here, where basically it says to your people, finish transgression and a sin, atone iniquity. To your holy city, I will bring everlasting righteousness, seal the vision, anoint the most holy place. But in Hebrew, there's actually a rhythm inside this. This verse is liked so much that they refer to this verse, scholars refer to this verse as the eschatological ideal because it has a summary and an introduction. It introduces you to the entire story and it summarizes the whole story. There is something gonna happen, Daniel, where the transgressions and sin will come to an end, where your holy city will be restored, something amazing is gonna take place. And this happens at the end of the 490 years inside that prophecy inside there. Now, here's a little insight. And again, this is why context really makes a huge difference. If you understand Jewish culture, if you understand the context of where Daniel's writing from, 490 years represents 10 jubilee cycles, right? 490 years represents 10 jubilee cycles. You're thinking, what's a jubilee cycle? Who cares about a jubilee cycle? Well, let me tell you why it's significant, and then you're like, no way. This is just, it's just, it's just crescendo. It's imagine the scale, we're coming to that final note, it's gonna be pretty phenomenal. Watch this. 490 years, 10 jubilee cycles. A jubilee cycle took place, when it took place, a jubilee was declared, and anybody who had any debt, any loans, any credit cards, any mortgages, it was zeroed out. Anybody who had any land that they had borrowed from somebody else was returned to them. Anybody who was even caught and was held as a slave was released. It was freedom at the end of the Jubilee. And you know how I, I've always said to you that when you look at the Bible, you sometimes you come to a place and you think to yourself, man, I'm reading this text. I feel like there's an echo back to another text. I feel this echoes back to another text. It's the weave that takes place inside the Bible. Well, we're going to give you a reference right now in Luke chapter 4. You've got to turn with me to Luke 4. This is so beautiful. You're going to want to underline it. 
You're going to mark it, and you're going to want to remember it. Page 952 in your Bibles, but Luke chapter 4. And I don't want you to lose Daniel. We'll come back to that. But here's the echo. So I'm giving you the preview so that you get, so when you read this text, you'll say, I know where this comes from, right? So Jesus, this is a story that takes place. Verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. This is what they did. They often would sit down in the synagogue. They would sit opposite each other, looking at each other. Somebody would get up. They would roll open the scroll. They would read the text, and then they would dialogue about it, just because the text was the source. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he was given the, prophet, the scroll of Isaiah. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, you've got to understand this. When you unroll the scroll, you can only unroll in one direction. You can't roll the scroll back either. You have to roll to the exact spot in Hebrew where you're going to be reading the text. So Jesus knew his text Isaiah. He probably had it all memorized. And you know why I know he had it all memorized? Because the next verse says this. He says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's quoting multiple texts inside Isaiah. He rolls a scroll, points at this section here, starts reading the section, and then from memory recites sections of Isaiah back here and brings it back together and ends with a sentence, the year of the Lord's favor, which is the Jubilee. So he's telling them, I've arrived, <laughs> all right? I'm about to tell you that I'm going to declare the year of the Jubilee. I'm about to tell you that there is going to be freedom. There's going to be a resetting of the clock. I am quoting Isaiah that you have looked to, and I'm telling you, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is what he's doing. And this echoes us back to Daniel chapter 9. So go back to Daniel chapter 9, because you're thinking, well, when does it start? How do you know that this all takes place? Well, wait for it. Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Know therefore and understand, remember, intelligence and faith, reason it through, that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks, then for 62 weeks and should be built again with squares and moat, but in troubled time. He says that there's going to be a decree. And when this decree comes out to restore Jerusalem, you know you start the countdown clock. So we looked back and we looked at the Bible, you look at Ezra and you look at the Bible and you start to work out which decree is taking place and you work out that it is 457 BC, in the fall of 457 BC. Then you do a little bit of math, it's not very hard. 62 plus how many? Plus seven, how much is that? It's close, 69, that's what I guess. All right, 62 plus seven, 69. You work out the weeks, you end up 483 years, you work from 457 BC 483 years, you end up at A.D. 27. This is the final week, and A.D. 27 is when Jesus is baptized, right? And then you watch the entire thing, the final week, the seven years, by the end of the seven years, stone, uh, Stephen is stoned, and the entire thing takes place, but there's more. Verse 27 says this of chapter 9, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of that week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And right at that point, in the middle of the week, Jesus is crucified. 
three and a half years into his ministry, Jesus crucified. It's the same term that's used in verse 26, the cutoff that takes place that's referred to in Isaiah 53 verse 8. Jesus dies on the cross. And at that moment when he dies on the cross, the curtain in the temple, which by the way was not just a, a, a thin piece of paper, this curtain was multiple, multiple, multiple sheets that it was the thickness of a hand. That's how thick this curtain was. This curtain, thick like this, woven with gold and silver and all sorts of incredible thread of beautiful, beautiful things. This curtain is ripped in half and the most holy and the holy is opened up because now the sacrificial system is over because at 6 p.m. on Friday on A.D., that date right there in the middle of three and a half years in that period right there, Jesus is crucified and the hope of the world is declared. So I question this question. Why? Are we struggling with hope? Why is the world still struggling with hope? Why is it that the New York Times this year in April recorded that we have had the highest level of suicide in the last 30 years than ever before? What is going on with the world where everybody's feeling this way? Why is it that fiction focuses on so much despair and alienation? I'm talking about the movies and all the books that are coming out on bleakness, the girl on the train, she's lost and it's just terrible and despair all the way through and betrayal and murder. Why is Breaking Bad and House of Cards, the anti-heroes, the heroes, people who are manipulative, who try to work through all sorts of evil ways, become like the people that we admire? What's going on in the world where we just kind of lean to something so dark and bleak and zombies are so popular that everybody wants to see people half dead? Who wants to go to a morgue? I don't get it. But there is this deep desire inside there, and we think that it doesn't affect us. You think that you spend hours reading and watching, and it doesn't affect your soul, doesn't affect what your character is, doesn't affect what you believe. This country, one historian says this, was birthed and has gone through three major phases, this country. It started off with God, nation, and self. When it started off, it believed that we were a place of freedom where people could worship God and be free and exist this way. And then it became the nation where we're gonna be the best country there is or ever is in the entire world. And it sure did rise above so many other places. But today, it's overwhelmed by a desire of self. We're all about ourselves now. Not about our nation, not about our God, not about anything else. We're about ourselves. We are the place where everything is about ourselves. You know that there are nearly 200 million blogs. You know what a blog is? People get online and they vomit. That's what they do. Like, oh, I saw a tree. And they write this stuff because they want somebody else to read that they saw a tree. I just, there's just a kind of despair taking place inside our lives. We have 1.71 billion Facebook users who are active, let alone all those who are not even active that just occasionally get on. Active users, 1.71 billion people who spend all of their life trying to say, this is what I'm doing today. This is what the thing is with Instagram and Twitter and all social media, and I'm part of it. I know, I agree. It's all part of it. We're all part of this vacuumus that focuses on self so often. And yet, new generations are coming through, growing up, and they're saying, I don't know if we're leaving this country or this world better than when we arrived in it. I don't know. 
You know, because two, three generations back, they were said, we are progressing, we are growing, we're becoming a better nation. Now, is it getting better? Why is this new generation coming up saying, I'm going to hold off on marriage, I'm going to hold off on career, I'm going to hold off on house, I'm going to hold off on kids, I'm going to hold off on everything because I am uncertain. I reached out to Jim Fazio to ask him to, to check this figure for me because I wasn't sure if it was accurate, to just check how much cash Google has in the bank. Right now, Google has $67 billion in the bank. Most businesses, when they're thinking of investing, is that they take their cash, they take some risk, they invest, and they try to generate income off of that cash. Why is it that Apple and Google and all these big companies are hoarding their cash? In the lowest interest rates ever, they're holding their cash, saying, I don't need to earn any money on this. Because they, I tell you this, are scared of the future. They have no hope. They don't know. They're just like, let me just keep cash. Apple was at one point saying, you know what, we've got so much cash, we could just like, you know, just replace your computer. A few years ago, if you had a problem with an Apple computer, you go in, they just, oh, we'll just give you a new one. Because we've got so much cash, we can handle this. Now they've kind of slowed down on that policy, but they're hoarding all their cash. There is the sense that I'm just not too sure about the future. I don't have the kind of hope anymore. With all of our science, we looked at Hurricane Matthew coming across. Everybody got to evacuate if they wanted to. Everybody got to be told and warned about this. But with all of our technology, with all of our ability, we could not stop four to six billion dollars of devastation because we can't control the wind. We can tell you the wind exists. We can tell you what it looks like from the sky. We can tell you where it's going to hit us but we can't do anything about the nature. And how much control do we truly have of the life that we have right now? I don't know. I think it's because we have actually tried to make hope ourselves. We've tried to make ourselves the heroes. We've tried to make ourselves the ones that we should be relying on. We're gonna ground this. I'm gonna make sure that I have my retirement fund so that I can retire and I can look after myself and not be a burden to my kids. Eli and I were just talking about this in Social Security yesterday, and you were showing me, what was the figure, the date? 2034, where they reckon that Social Security will end, run out of cash. I mean, who knows what's going to happen, right? There is so much uncertainty, yet there is only one thing that we can hold on to with certainty, and that is God. That is the reality of Jesus. And this is what Daniel is trying to say. I want you to understand that I can tell you with precision that something's going to take place inside here. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is question number three, the final question for this morning. How do you claim a new hope? How do you claim a new hope? Remember that something amazing took place at 6 p.m. on Friday, AD 31. And I think sometimes we think about the cross and what we think about is salvation and we diminish it right down to just personal salvation. Jesus died for me and that's what it is. In two weeks' time, I'm going to address what the cross really means. And you can come here, we can enjoy the conversation and we're going to just try and open up a wider conversation on this kind of thing here. But there's something amazing took place at 6 p.m. on Friday. And to understand this, you need to go with me to Revelation. Now, I know you're thinking, hang on a second. We're going to go to Revelation. We're going to do that in January. I know this is a sneak peek. Revelation chapter 12. So turn with me there, page 1136, last book in the Bible. You can then work backwards until you find Revelation chapter 12. And these are the verses that I want us to focus on a little bit just as we wrap up this morning. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 13. Page 1136. 
Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels were fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon was thrown down, and that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Here's a little sneak peek. When you study Daily Walk next week, and you look at Daniel's chapter 10 to 12, you will start to understand that Michael is Jesus. All right? I'm just letting you know in advance, so you're kind of like not surprised, like, I got that, I'm ahead of the game, I don't even have to read that paragraph. He is Jesus. So Jesus has war with Satan. And then verse 10 says this, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. I believe that this battle took place after the cross. This battle takes place after the cross. Friday, 6 p.m., Christ ascends after resurrection ascends, and there is war in heaven. And this person who is the accuser, for those of you who go to some of the traditional Bible study classes that we have here afterwards, you'll be studying the book of Job, then you will remember Job's chapter one, the very beginning there. You've got somebody who walks around, roams around, Satan, who says, I own this planet. This is the accuser. He accuses Zechariah chapter three that I included in the daily walk. He throws excrement on the high priest. He kind of to discolor everything that's going on inside there. This is who the accuser is. And then verse 12 says this, therefore rejoice, O heavens, you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, everything that we know, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in a great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Verse 13 says, when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, and this represents the dark ages that we experience where the church is persecuted heavily. Now, don't get me wrong. Isaiah 14, 14 tells us that there was war, that Satan was cast out. He was expelled out of heaven. But when he was expelled out of heaven, he went down to earth, and he took control of this planet. That's what he did. And so Jesus himself recognizes this. You know when Jesus is in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, and we had read verses 13 to 19 earlier today, but Luke chapter 4, when Satan comes to him and says, I have this planet, and I wish to give it to you if you will bow down to me, he's not lying. He owned the planet. The planet is his. He walks to heaven and has a discussion and represents heaven inside there. Jesus himself in John 12, 31, 14, 30, and 16, 11, Jesus himself says, and I tell you this, that Jesus says, I am going to remove him from this. Satan tempts Jesus and says, I'm gonna remove him from this. But then you think to yourself, is this really true? Could that battle have taken place back there? Well, turn with me to Paul's writings in Ephesians chapter one. We did a whole sermon on this, page 1079, uh, but Ephesians chapter one. page 1079, and this again is a great text that I encourage you to write it down, mark it down inside your Bibles, Ephesians chapter one here, verse 20 through to 21, it says this, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name, and it is named not only in this age, but in also the one to come. Then Jesus himself says in John chapter 12, 31, now the ruler of this world, he's talking about Satan, will be cast down. Just, he's predicting that something amazing at 6 p.m. on that Friday, AD 31, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 is saying something amazing is going to take place here. And I want you to understand that the kingdom of God has arrived. Now, we struggle with this language and we don't understand what it means because you see pain, right? You see suffering. You see turmoil in your life. Absolutely. But God says, I've taken this kingdom back. There is now and there is not yet to come yet. It's coming. When Jesus comes and restores this entire plan, but right now what he's saying is this, Satan, you've been cast in, and as Satan knows that he's been cast away fully, he no longer has a seat to represent this planet at the meetings that take place of all the universe. He knows his time is short, and he is like a roaring lion going around creating havoc and pain. And this is what takes place in Daniel 7, 8 when he talks about the prophecy and all the terrible things that take place for 1,260 years and the oppression that takes place. Satan is upset with us assenting to the fact and the reality that God has this planet back. And he calls us today to experience faith, reason, and intuition. So, are we people of hope? Or are we people of fear, people of doubt, or people of impossibility? Whatever you're facing in your life, God says that if you can wrestle through these areas here, experience where you can say to yourself, I actually experience faith, I experience God, I experience community, I live in community, I can do that. Where you have faith, where you make a choice, and you say, God, I want to choose you and I want to understand more what this actually is. If you have reason, where you have the ability to use your mind and say, God, help me through Bible study, through life groups, through the daily walk, wrestle through what this really means. If you can follow your intuition, where God is nudging at you all the time, saying, there's got to be something more in this life than what you think it's going to be right now. Scientists have tried, philosophers have tried, theologians have wrestled through what actually happens at the end of life. And nobody really wants to have to think about it until you get to that life point in your life where you think to yourself, this could actually end. And this is where Jesus says, I am the hope. I am the hope. I am the one who will pull you through. I am the one who has your hands all the time. Ryan Stevenson wrote a song um, this year. And when I was listening to the lyrics, I just heard, I only heard the song about a month ago. I asked Pastor Lai if he could actually sing and lead us in the song uh, this year. But it became very popular as it walked through the charts, the Christian charts inside there. He was a paramedic. Ryan Stevenson was a paramedic. And as a paramedic, he just experienced all the disasters that I'm talking about. All the things that you experience in your life. All the things that happen to your friends and to those around you. And as I listened to the lyrics of the song, and I listened to the song, I just felt that this song was saying to me, listen, God is saying, I am the one who will hold you. I am the one who will hold you through the storm. I am the one who understands more than anybody else what God has called you to. This eye of the storm, this thing that we're going through, is what God has called us to. Now, I don't know where you are, and I don't know what you're holding back, whether you look at yourself and you say, I need more experience. I need maybe more faith, I need more reasoning, or I need to just follow my intuition. But I'm telling you this, that God has been calling you, nudging you from the day that you were created, saying, there's only one path really available. That path is with Him. There is only one hope, and that hope is to stay connected to Him. So, 
if you're not sure how to experience it, how to actually grow your faith, if you're not sure how to reason through this, if you're not sure how to actually grow in Jesus Christ, following the intuition of the Spirit talking to you, then take out your worship guide, fill in your Connect card, place it in those altars over there, our Connect connection points there, place it inside there, and let us know because we will come and help you. We'll help you in that process. I tell you this, there is no greater joy no greater moment in our life when you say, I embrace God. When you embrace God and you live with God, there's no greater hope that we have. And that's the promise of Daniel chapter nine. God says, I knew it before it happened. I'm letting you know, Daniel, that you're ushering something amazing. The year of the Jubilee, the celebration that this kingdom is back and God is gonna restore it one day. And I tell you, my friends, we are not far from that. We are not far from that.